Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Kellen, there's an article that's been posted in our collapse a few times. It's a little bit of an older article. I think it came out in 2020, and it's titled, This Model Forecast, the U.S.'s Current Unrest a Decade Ago, It Now Says Civil War. And when this article was posted recently, uh, it's actually kind of interesting because a bunch of Redditors did some sleuthing and found out that the guy was like a very like pro-China, anti-U.S. guy and was like always posting propaganda and talking about how the U.S. is going down. Anyway, they ended up removing him from the subreddit. And the article comes from a trustworthy source. You know, it's a, it's a legit model. And so the, the model takes certain inputs from a society, like the median workers' wages to GDP per capita ratio, life expectancy, number of new millionaires, things like that. And they've, they've applied it to U.S. history, and it's actually been accurate in predicting the U.S. Civil War in 1861, unrest in the 1930s, Jim Crow segregation, and so on and so forth. And so the same model basically also predicted that in 2020 there would be civil unrest, and now it's ticking towards saying we're headed towards civil war. Kellen and I want to make it clear that we don't necessarily think that the U.S. is headed towards civil war. There's always this conversation and debate on our collapse around people saying we're headed towards a civil war and, and this idea of what a civil war actually is and what it looks like. And that's not what the topic of this episode is. You know, we're not here to talk about civil war, but I think it's clear that there is a spectrum of peace versus violence, right? It's not like either everything is completely peaceful or we're in the midst of this terrible civil war. There's all sorts of levels of civil unrest and violence that can happen in between. 
That being said, there could also be civil unrest that's worse than civil war, right? There could be all sorts of issues and violence within a nation that isn't necessarily civil war. So while civil war is, I think, an interesting thing to talk about, the main fact is that the U.S. is increasingly headed towards more polarization and more political violence. Yeah, and as it relates to this article, I know we don't intend to spend much time on the article itself. There are just a couple of ideas and principles here that we'll dive a little bit deeper on. And one of those ideas comes from a Professor Goldstone, which the article says, you know, he is a leading authority on the study of revolutions and long-term social change at George Mason University. And this model, Corey, that you've been talking about, it says was developed by him and somebody else named Peter Turchin. And at one point in the article, as it's talking about this prediction of civil war, it says it came down to population changes. The American population surged after World War II, the boomer generation born in a time of relative peace and plenty. As this massive cohort aged and accrued wealth, they could make the country vulnerable to political crisis. And then it says what we really want to dive into it says but this would only happen he wrote if the elites did three things tighten up the path to mobility to favor themselves and their children like increasing the cost of university dampen wage growth and claim a greater share of economic gains for themselves and resist taxation so that government is starved of needed revenues and then according to the article it says as it turned out this is exactly what would happen over the following three decades and so when you say that would happen in the next three decades and this is referencing a book that was written in 1991 where those sort of predictions were, were laid out. And it's interesting that they focus on the violence and polarization in a society happening based on what the elites are doing, right? And you mentioned those three things, tightening up the path to mobility to favor themselves and their children, dampening wage growth and claim a greater share of economic gains for themselves, and resist taxation so that government is starved of needed revenues. In this episode today, we're just going to focus on one of those, the first one, which is tighten up the path to mobility to favor themselves and their children. And I think before we get into that and talk about why that is happening, why it's happened and, and what that could lead to, I think it's important to make sure that we're very clear about who we're talking about when we say elites. Because I think often there's a misconception about elites being anyone sort of in like the upper class, anyone with any sorts of money. And really what we're referring to here is the ruling elite, the people who use their vast amounts of money to sway politicians and laws in their favor. And they do so sort of at the detriment of working class people. So your neighbor who makes six figures, right, and owns a boat and a nice house, that's not who we're talking about. We're not talking about the doctor who makes $400,000 a year, right? Having money isn't the problem here. It's having power and using your money to increase your power and decrease the well-being of other people. I think a good example of this, you know, I think of someone like Robert Evans. I know we brought him up several times in the podcast, but last I heard, Robert Evans was making something like half a million dollars a year or at least approaching that. You know, when people say eat the rich, I don't think that they're talking about showing up at Robert Evans' house with a guillotine because he makes a large amount of money. We'll get into more of like who the elites are, what it means to be an elite later, but I did want to make it clear that we're not ever claiming in this podcast that having money makes you an elite. Having money means that you've figured out how to survive and thrive in the capitalist system, and I personally don't find any fault in that. I, I hope that one day I can survive and thrive well in, in this capitalist system, especially and even as things get more difficult. 
Yeah, I'm glad you make that distinction because as I occasionally look at what's taking place on the Collapse subreddit and the kind of dialogue that's happening, I think sometimes people use the term elite to reference anybody who has money. I think like any celebrity, any sports star, any businessman who who is making a significant amount of money all gets kind of lumped into this like elite group. And yes, that is the upper class of society. But what you're talking about is people who are in positions to make or influence decisions at a larger scale. These are the people that we would say are in power. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. You know, I could pick a a celebrity at random who makes millions of dollars a year, and that doesn't make them an elite, right? But there are some celebrities who I could classify as as elite because they're using their wealth and position to make policy changes that benefit them. And I also want to point out that we're not saying that every elite is necessarily a bad person or on the wrong side of history, right? Some people are in positions of power, and they're there to do genuinely the right thing. I think that's fewer and far between, but we are primarily talking about the people who have wealth and power and use that wealth and power to increase their wealth and power while doing exactly what this paragraph that we read earlier, as stated by Professor Goldstone, you know, tightening up the path to mobility to favor themselves and their children. So regarding that question of whether the path to mobility has been tightened up, first of all, I'll just say that it can be challenging to point the finger at any specific group of elites. There's a lot of factors that come into play here. But Corey, you and I in the past have talked about this widening wealth gap. And as an example of that, the average hourly wage in 1964, when converted to modern dollars, is $20.27 an hour. And if you compare that to the average hourly wage in 2018, which was $22.65, that means that over 54 years, there was only an 11.7% increase. Whereas on the other hand, how much CEOs get paid has increased 1,322% since 1978. So it's pretty comparable is what you're saying. It's honestly mind-boggling just how much the wealth gap has opened up. And we talk about this K curve. And so there's this question of, well, okay, there's a bigger distance between the rich and the poor, but can people still climb the ladder as easily as they used to? And there's a term for that. It's called socioeconomic mobility. And one definition of it is that it refers to the upward or downward movement from one social class or economic level to another. And that can be through job changes, inheritance, marriage, connections, tax changes, innovation, lobbying, luck, whatever. But a little over a decade ago, there was a study published, it's in 2008, and it showed that economic mobility, at least in the U.S., increased from 1950 to 1980. But since then, it dropped off sharply. And as I did digging into this, I kind of got overwhelmed by just all the different numbers. You know, there's relative mobility and absolute mobility. There's intragenerational mobility and intergenerational mobility. And I don't want to dive into all the different definitions and all the ways that this can be looked at. But the point is that it has become much more difficult to change your social class, to jump up the rungs of the ladder. It's interesting that you mentioned that since 1964, the average wage has only increased 11%. You mentioned that crazy like 1000% number for CEOs. And it's not just that wages haven't increased much, it's that the cost of everything else has. 
you know, I don't know the numbers, but I'm guessing that like the average rent has gone up way more than 11% since 1964 and food prices and health insurance and all these different numbers. I'm sure the costs are much higher now as a percentage of our wages than they were back then. So not only is it that the rich are getting richer, but the poor are getting poorer as well. We're headed in both directions. So as the poor get poorer and there are more poor who are getting poorer, it just widens that gap more and more. And then you add in what you just mentioned, that it's getting increasingly difficult to change your classes, to move from one economic status to the next. And it seems like this is just spot on with that statement that elites are making it more difficult to have that mobility. Yeah, that's true, especially for like the middle class. Wages have kind of stagnated, but costs of goods and services, cost of living has gradually increased. And so we have seen kind of this disappearing of the middle class. That said, I think it's worth mentioning that our standard of living is much higher than it was decades ago. And so it's hard to compare apples to apples, but there is this issue of it becoming harder to jump up to those higher socioeconomic rungs of the ladder, like I mentioned. One of the big factors there is that, you know, there's a lot of research that shows education promotes economic mobility. For example, having a four-year college degree makes someone born into the bottom quintile of income three times more likely to climb all the way to the top as an adult. Okay, so to rephrase that, if you're born in the bottom 20%, then you're three times as likely to make your way into the top 20% as an adult if you get a four-year degree. Yep, three times more likely than somebody who doesn't. And if you just look at median income for somebody that has basically no education and somebody who has a high school diploma, somebody who has a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, like there are significant jumps as you increase your education. However, that's become much more difficult because the cost of education has gone way up. So average college tuition and fees have increased 1,200% since 1980 while inflation has only gone up 236%. So there's kind of this rule of thumb that tuition rates increase twice the general inflation rate. They'll go up about 8% per year, and that means the cost of college doubles every nine years. That sounds pretty sustainable to me. For me, as a parent of young children, it's pretty depressing. I would love for my children as they grow older to be able to get a good education, but trying to think of how we will possibly afford that, is definitely discouraging. Well, no sweat, Kellen. They can just saddle themselves with a lifetime of student loans. <laughs> That's a great segue into exactly what I want to talk about. Just in August of this year, there's a report. It's on educationdata.org, and it is just pages and pages of statistics and numbers. But the average cost of college in the United States is $35,720 per student per year. And if you break that out just a little bit, four years at a public in-state institution is going to cost you $103,456. If you go out of state, that's going to look like $174,885. And a traditional private institution is $215,796 over four years. But what's crazy is that only 39% graduate within four years. And so these are outrageous numbers. People cannot pay for it. Because of that, Americans owe over $1.71 trillion in student loan debt, which is about $739 billion more than the total U.S. credit card debt. 
And on average, students are paying $1,898 in interest alone each year. And the average student borrower spends 20 years paying off the loans. So again, we're talking about averages, but it has gotten to the point where to get the kind of education that is necessary in many cases in order to have any sort of social mobility, the cost is just unaffordable. And in a lot of cases, people are taking on tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt so that they can try to make enough money that they can afford to pay off that student loan debt. And in those cases, social mobility isn't happening. People aren't increasing their socioeconomic status. Yeah, those numbers are absolutely disheartening. And I've heard all these horror stories from from people who are saddled with all this debt, who feel like they're never going to pay it off. They can't get into a home because they owe too much on their student loans. You know, I know people who are paying more on their student loans than I pay for my mortgage. And the fact that it's just increasing and that it increases at such a fast rate is really saddening. And it's infuriating to me that interest is collected on these loans or that in a lot of cases, the interest rates are high, especially considering that a lot of them are federally backed loans or it's the federal government who owns the loans. You would think that a nation who wants to succeed and wants its people to succeed would incentivize getting a higher education instead of penalizing it. And, you know, I I read an article recently that showed college attendance is decreasing sharply, especially among males. And it should be no surprise that as, yeah, these costs are just increasing an insane amount that more and more people are realizing that a college education may not be the best scenario for them because they know that they won't be able to afford the loans. And I want to say really quickly, I don't think Kellen and I are saying, you know, don't go to college. If you're a young person about to graduate high school and you're considering whether or not to go to college, you have to make that decision for yourself based on what's available to you, you know, maybe what types of scholarships, what would the cost be, and, and what is the future return. Kellen and I each got degrees, and I think we feel that those degrees have, have paid off for us. So yeah, in no way are we saying don't go out and get an education But it is disheartening to see how much the prices are increasing and the fact that it is making it so that a large percentage of the population can't obtain those degrees and can't experience that upward mobility in in class or economic status. And to add to that, one interesting thing is that it's not just students who are taking on tons of debt to be able to try to get an education. In many cases, it's parents as well. And so this has kind of a ripple effect across several segments of society. So anyways, that is one factor. It is getting harder to have social mobility. And this article that we talked about from the beginning of this episode mentions that as kind of a predictor and a factor for civil conflict or social unrest. One thing that is kind of unclear, though, is whether it's actually elites that are causing that decrease in social mobility You know, it's interesting. One study shows that for every $1 in subsidized federal student loans, it increases college tuition by 60 cents. And there's some other figures that I came across around the way colleges and universities skyrocket tuition costs for students that are eligible for scholarships. And so it just keeps kind of ratcheting up. And there are a lot of things we could point to with increases in demand for how many people are trying to get college degrees. You know, some say that we've kind of had this educational inflation and getting a bachelor's degree is similar to what getting a high school degree used to be. And so people feel like just to land a decent job, they need to get a college degree. 
there's all these universities trying to compete against each other and increase their wages for their staff to attract the best talent so that they can stay prestigious. And so there's a lot of factors that go into this. And it's hard to say that, you know, there's just a handful of people at the top, you know, who are making this happen. I don't know that elites are purposefully trying to make it harder for somebody to improve their social class. But it is clear that the policies and the decisions being made and the way that the government funds universities is having a major impact. Yeah, that makes sense. And I feel like the sort of selfishness or or greed that comes with capitalism and sort of this desire for anyone at the top to want to stay there, you know, you look at lobbying, and this isn't just with um, with the university example, this was with all sorts of things, but there's so much lobbying that happens in politics where an elite through money, power, quid pro quo, blackmail, whatever it is, can influence the outcome of a policy or law that's going to be passed. And like you said, they may not be consciously saying, I'm going to pass this to make it harder for other people to succeed. They may be saying, I'm going to pass this to make sure that I continue to succeed, but it has that knock-on effect of decreasing that mobility one way or another. So all of that being said, I think it would be interesting at this point of the episode to refer back to something that we spoke about all the way back in episode six, when we talked about political turmoil. But I want to look at this in more detail, specifically when it comes to the ruling elite. So in that episode, we talked about John Michael Greer's book, Dark Age America. He has a chapter in that book that talks about politics. And of all the chapters I've listened to in that book, this is the one I've listened to the most, probably five or six times. Because it's fascinating and it takes a pretty abstract concept and explains it out really well. And he basically talks about the cycle of elitism, right? How they rise and how they fall. And by looking at that, we can kind of see what the result is of there being too much of this decrease in mobility. Just like the article that we quoted here at the beginning with Professor Goldstone, you know, he warns with his models of violence of, in his words, civil war, civil conflict that comes from or that comes as a result of this decrease in mobility. And John Michael Greer in his book basically explains the same thing, but he explains it in great detail. And so first and foremost, I think it's really important to understand that social hierarchies are capital and they have maintenance costs that are associated with that capital. So this goes back to catabolic collapse, which we've talked about a few times. And if you haven't listen to those episodes or you've forgotten kind of how that all works, I recommend going back to our first episode on catabolic collapse, which is episode five, and then also our deeper dive into catabolic collapse. But just like, you know, all our infrastructure is capital, our physical goods are capital, so are non-tangible things like social hierarchies. And just like other forms of capital fall apart during catabolic collapse, so too can the bureaucratic institutions that the political or, or ruling elite have set up. John Michael Greer talks about how when an institution is new, and by institution he could be talking about a country, a society, a, a culture, it's easy for zealous or gifted outsiders to be able to become an elite. So, you know, I think of sort of the scrappiness that got Alexander Hamilton into his position. If you've seen the musical Hamilton, it kind of talks about his history as, you know, he didn't know a lot of people. He didn't have an in from birth. He didn't come from wealth or privilege. He actually lived a pretty difficult childhood and earned the spot that he ultimately held in his society. 
But as societies grow into more maturity, it becomes much less likely that that type of ambition, intelligence, or skills are going to be enough to allow you to pave your way into that inner circle of elites. At that point, it becomes pretty much completely about who you know, what your family ties are, that sort of thing. And it's at that point that current ruling elite select and groom their own replacements. And according to JMG, John Michael Greer, there are two routes in. So one is that you can be related to somebody who's already in, or you can make your way in from the outside by being deferential and supportive to the inner circle. And this is an exact quote from him. He says, meeting all its expectations and conforming to its opinions and decisions until the senior members start to treat you like a junior member. And a great example of this is to go back to the education system. You know, elites can essentially buy the way in for their children into these schools or institutions simply because of their name or by putting pressure onto the school admissions. Recently, there's been a lot of college admissions scandals on the news that you've heard of, and those have shown that this very thing is actually happening. So once in the school, those students can abuse their status by accepting the offers from classmates to take notes so they don't have to attend classes write papers or do homework for them, tutor them, that type of thing. Those classmates that are helping them are more than happy to do it because it offers an opening that will help them work their way in from the outside, as John Michael, Michael Greer described a minute ago. He says, the university inevitably looks the other way, knowing they can count on generous donations from the parents as a reward for putting up with Junior's antics. So it's kind of this idea of like the spoiled, snobby, bratty kid who gets his way, who just lazies his way through college by riding off of the backs of other people who are more than willing to grovel to him in order to either gain his favor, gain his family's favor, in hopes that they might have an in with that family and one day become a member of that inner circle as well. Honestly, to me, it's all kind of pathetic. <laughs> you know, John Michael Greer talks about how um, these people who are coming in from the outside are basically just brown-nosing the whole way, constantly in fear that they're not living up to the right expectations. They're not believing or thinking or doing the exact right thing that they should be in order to gain favor by these people who control their destiny, basically. And he talks about how the only way for them to, to make their way in is to conform perfectly to the existing elite's desires and thoughts, which basically, in a way, gets rid of any form of personal creativity and, and self-thought. And he talks about how this model over time creates stability, not just for the elites themselves, but for a society and for institutions. He says, with an inner core of genial duffers surrounded by an outer circle of rigid conformists, the last people on the planet who are likely to disturb the settled calm of the social order. And what happens over time is that power tends to move from individuals into bureaucratic institutions. So elites basically surround themselves with this outer circle of rigid conformists. And then on top of that, they create these bureaucratic institutions to shield themselves. In a mature society, layers and layers of these bureaucratic institutions are created, which buffers elites and creates redundancies in their power. Basically, what this does is it makes it so that elites can take all of the benefit of those institutions that keep them afloat, but leave the work and the burden to other people. The institutionalization of power means that elites end up having very little to do with the management of public affairs or their own wealth. So everything's run by middle managers, right? Um, the ones we spoke about earlier that are that are in with the elites without wielding the actual power or the wealth. So in the end, elites are presiding over institutions that would be perfectly functional 
without them. And it's on purpose because it means that they get all the advantages that come with their position while having to deal with as few of the inconveniences and work as possible. You know, if I can interject here, not to detract from what you're saying, but it's just so interesting to hear this process of elites and how people work their way in and how elites maintain their power described almost as like a formula or like if I were watching some nature show about an animal, it's like, here's how it maintains its habitat. And I think generally speaking, what you're describing holds true. What's interesting is some of the exceptions. And in some cases, you know, somebody doesn't have much education at all. They have a good idea, enough luck, they become ultra wealthy, and they don't go the traditional path or have to, like you described, kind of brown nose their way into an elite circle. And I think some of those people stand out as notable public figures, and it causes people to forget that that's the exception, that really that's rarely how it works. Usually it's what you're describing. Yeah, and they'll use that as sort of a um, the American dream, right? They'll say, anyone can achieve this. All you have to do is put out the hard work and, and work 90-hour weeks, and you too can be this successful and, and become an elite. They don't use the word elite, but it's the same idea. But when it comes to the people who are actually making the decisions, for the most part, they are chosen in the way that we've sort of described up to this point. And it's funny the comment that you made about sort of animals in their natural habitat and the way they maintain order, because in the book, JMG actually uh, does compare it to, I think it's baboons and, and their way of, of sort of creating natural hierarchies and, and maintaining that order. So going back to the idea that in a mature society, the power then kind of shifts away from individual people and more towards institutions. So that can be a huge drain on resources. This is where it comes back to the idea of catabolic collapse and the fact that this is all capital. You know, entire departments and teams can exist with little or no real function or benefit at all, but they're eating up tons of resources in the meantime. And if you think of the U.S. government and these huge institutions and departments and teams and just the inefficiency behind how all that works. It just feels like a wildly inaccurate use of resources, whether those resources be financial, you know, labor capital, time especially, things like that. John Michael Greer talks about how, in the end, the power to make decisions becomes more and more abstract as it's taken away from one person being able to say, yes, this is what we should do, and it moves more into... Uh, large committees and just a lot of red tape and long bureaucratic processes to come to some sort of decision. So in the end, there are two disadvantages to the status quo for elites. The status quo being the way that we currently have these large bureaucratic institutions. So the first is that large institutions are not good at making changes because only conformists are chosen into the inner circle thinking outside the box doesn't exist. So when changes need to be made quickly in times of crisis, the institutions find themselves incapable of making those rapid decisions. And the second thing is that elites put blind faith in the idea of their own invincibility. He said that elites misunderestimate the crises and sources of conflict that pose an existential threat to the survival of their class and its institutions. The illusion of invincibility of elites tends to be pervasive outside of the elite class as well, up until the time that the crises or catastrophes manifest themselves. So he's even saying not only do elites feel that they're invincible, but the proletariat, us, the people, also view that as sort of 
invincible and we think it's impenetrable things will never change he talks about how some of the biggest tropes are this idea that as things get harder elites will clasp down more firmly on their power and that they'll be able to do that successfully basically further entrenching themselves in the system and he makes the point that while yes they may attempt to grasp that power more firmly in the end it is to no avail they are far from invincible in their power and there's several reasons for that He said, this attraction is also a death wish. Uh, The attraction being the idea that they can work in institutions and have other people do their bidding for them, basically. This attraction is also a death wish because it rarely takes the people actually doing the work long to figure out that the ruling class in this situation has become entirely parasitic and that society would continue to function perfectly well were something suitably terminal to happen to the titular holders of power. So in times of catabolic collapse, when decisions have to be made around what capital remains, which corners are going to be cut, which infrastructure survives, and which infrastructure fails, the people in power are going to make decisions that they believe will protect themselves, right? Their wealth, their lifestyles, while neglecting the parts of the system that benefit others, specifically those lower classes. And this is where the idea of decreasing mobility comes in. We see this today with wage stagnation, with welfare cuts, you know, the university example that you gave, Kellen. If they're smart, they leave just enough to keep people happy so they don't revolt, right? It's kind of the bread and circuses idea. But as times get tougher and tougher and catabolic collapses in full motion, especially during crises, they will always choose to protect themselves rather than the people. And that's why we see the articles we've seen recently where billionaires increased their wealth 40% since the pandemic. They didn't choose to help the people. They chose to help themselves. And this is a critical mistake that weakens their power in the end as a worsening condition enables people to revolt, to infight, or to welcome invasion from outside sources. There's sort of this idea that it gets to a point where people would say, as long as whatever is being proposed, even if it comes from an outside power, if it's better than what we have now, we'll take it. And he uses the example of like the Roman Empire and the barbarians and how many uh, people in the Roman Empire welcomed the barbarian invasion because their living conditions were so poor and because they knew that the barbarians were going to fight for them and provide a, a simpler lifestyle. Some of what you've mentioned reminds me of what we saw this last year. I don't know if you remember just how chaotic things got last summer when the pandemic was in full swing and we had all the social unrest, a lot of outcry about racial injustice, and there were marches in the streets and then riots in the streets. And in the face of all this chaos, there was this term that kind of surfaced of essential worker. And in many cases, it was people who are kind of at the bottom of the totem pole, you know, the people collecting your trash off the street or these healthcare workers or whoever else that society recognized we would be in big trouble without this group. And it's funny that Like you just mentioned, billionaires were making however many more billions during the pandemic, and yet wages for these essential workers didn't really change at all. And there was some government stimulus that was pumped into the economy to try and kind of ease the tension and help people to some degree, while at the same time, the elite class is just living in such lavish luxury. And personally, I think the attempts that were made to try to calm people down and make them more content with their situation were pretty successful. We are seeing a lot of labor shortages and issues because people are just fed up and they're tired of the poor conditions and not getting paid very much. But generally, 
generally speaking, there's not any sort of mass revolt against those that are really taking advantage of a rough situation and increasing their wealth by multiple times. Yeah, and this is where the conversation to me gets super interesting because some people understand that the real power doesn't lie with the elite, right? The elites hold an abstract power. They have the power of manipulating institutions and and handling bureaucratic processes in a way that allows them to keep their power. That's basically their skill and their power. The real power comes from the working class people who are keeping everything running. And that's why you hear people make calls for general strikes, you know, which would be where a large enough amount of people simply stop working to show basically the elite class who's boss in a way to say, hey, we have the power to destroy this economy and and your wealth. But like you said, enough sort of pittance is thrown at people that the general population doesn't wake up to that understanding of their power. It goes back to the idea of bread and circuses. And this is why a lot of people in the subreddit will kind of scoff at the idea of a civil war. You know, people are too placated. People have enough of what they need right now that they would never consider taking up arms against someone else. You know, they, they laugh at that idea. And, and I agree that the way things are right now, that's unlikely. Civil conflict and, and political violence is a whole other thing, you know, a la the troubles from the Irish conflict, you know, that sort of thing where it's some severe civil conflict and political violence without maybe necessarily being considered a civil war. But as conditions continue to deteriorate, which we know they will with catabolic collapse, there's definitely no reason not to believe that enough people could be swayed to to kind of see that predicament and understand their power in the working class. And not just the proletariat, but also the overseers. So John Michael Greer, if you'll remember back to episode six, he talks a lot about the overseer class. And these are the ones who basically help keep society under control for the elites. But generally, overseers come from the working class. So we're talking about police officers, the military, media personnel, staffers in these elites' organizations, um, all of those types of people, even lower level government officials, who for now basically kind of live in that conformist, do what the elites tell us to do sort of mind frame, but who when seeing their own people mistreated and even they themselves are mistreated and their quality of life is being lowered as elites put their own priorities over their priorities um it's so john michael greer talks about how fast it is that that transition can happen where suddenly the the elite class is left without their overseers their workers who are actually the ones who maintain their power for them and that once that happens, he makes a lot of jokes then about um, they either, you know, run or they're hunted down or they're the guillotines and all that type of thing. He says, almost all modern revolutions have happened in countries where the elite has turned over the bulk of the actual work and burden to the working class while making it harder to reach their levels of comfort. Mature societies can continue stumbling along indefinitely under sheer momentum, but are usually upended by some sort of catastrophe in which those who are actually wielding the power realize their best interests no longer lie with their masters or their handlers. And once the mechanisms of power are in flux, that can mean that the elite have no one to command, no one who will listen, and they're left powerless. That sort of abstract power that they hold to maneuver bureaucratic institutions means absolutely nothing when those bureaucratic institutions cease to exist which is an inevitable outcome of catabolic collapse. Concrete power, on the other hand, 
is the type of power, you know, that a person or an individual could hold that would allow them to truly lead people or lead militaries or lead, you know, whatever the case might be to actually take and hold power. And it's scary to me to think of the types of, you know, power vacuums that are created once the the ruling elite no longer wield that power who steps in to, to do that. And that's where all the questions come in around what type of violence there is at that point. Is it civil war? Is it infighting? Is it an invasion from a foreign power? In episode six, we talked about some of the really negative consequences of this happening, like potential genocides, right? Xenophobia, fascism. We've seen it in the past where certain minorities are blamed for the issues. So in the end, we don't, we don't know what the end result is other than the elites who have put themselves in power have basically now put themselves out of power because they've put themselves first all along the way. And the main catalyst for this, it starts with going back to what we talked about at the beginning of the episode with the decrease in mobility, but it's exacerbated and carried out by the types of crises and catastrophes that come about because of catabolic collapse. You know, it's so fascinating to tie it all together this way. To me, it speaks to complexity. We've talked about how complex our society is. And when you get these hierarchies that have so many different levels and you get the kind of society where you have to have people specializing to such a high degree that we need the kind of education that we need in order for people to fulfill a really valuable role, at least in terms of what society is willing to pay. It also speaks to that legitimacy that we talk about with government and what causes that to fade in the eyes of the people. You mentioned catabolic collapse multiple times and how relevant that is to this conversation. And we talk about the issues that will be caused for elites as we see more catastrophes and disasters and we move from crisis to crisis. And it's so interesting that all of this, if we go back to the very beginning of our conversation, this article that we had cited mentions a predictable model for civil conflict based on a time of prosperity and then what the elites after that major time of prosperity choose to do. And for the most part, it comes down to how generous or selfless they can get themselves to be in order to make the situation good for those that aren't elites. If they can do that, then you can avoid the conflict. But it's the fact that there is that lack of mobility. It's the fact that they are like you said, kind of acting as parasites. We mentioned, you know, avoiding taxes and uh, relying on the people that are actually doing all the work and the labor. And that kind of brings me full circle to our conversation we've had about corruption and about moral decay and how if people would just be good people, <laughs> we could avoid so many of the problems that our society is seeing. You know, I mentioned that this is a pretty abstract concept, but there's so much concrete evidence of it in our current situation. You know, I think of these last couple of years, and I think of the crises and catastrophes that we've encountered with the pandemic, with social justice questions, you know, recently with issues of supply chains and the pressures on housing. And John Michael Greer says there are basically three different ways that the elite can react to these types of issues. And you just mentioned one which is be generous, give back, right? Solve the problem by actually increasing mobility or genuinely alleviating some of the problems, which he talked about being something that was done um, in the 1930s during the Great Depression. The other two ways are to ignore the problem completely, which he says in the short term is great because it doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to put any capital towards it. But in the long run, he says that's a, a terrible choice because it doesn't fix anything and actually makes the issue worse. 
And the third option is to respond with force and oppression. He mentions that he doesn't think we'll ever see what happened in the 1930s happen again as far as that sort of uh, help being extended and a lessening of the wealth gap. The reason primarily being because the U.S. or the, the world as a whole doesn't have the economic capabilities to do so. Our economy comes from our resources and our resources are dwindling, right? Because of catabolic collapse, essentially, there isn't the possibility for elites to truly make amends. And so they won't try. And so that leaves the other two options, which are not good options and which we have seen some of both of, right? Um, housing, for example, mobility, upward mobility is decreasing in housing as there's all this pressure from increasing house prices. You know, all these houses are being bought by large corporations so that they can be rented back to poor people for exorbitant rates, right? That's, again, making poor people poorer while making the wealthy wealthier. And we have this issue with homelessness because of the pandemic. And we've seen, you know, the police come out in force to remove homeless camps or to evict. And the thing about that is that oppression causes an insane amount of resources and money. It further exacerbates catabolic collapse, removing resources from other entities uh, and putting it towards further oppression. We saw the same thing at a much larger scale with the Black Lives Matter protests and the amount of police response. But we also see the other option where they do nothing, right? They completely ignore the issue as well. And so whichever one of these they choose, they both are negative in their own ways. But I think that it's safe to say that the the pandemic and everything that we saw in 2020 is sort of the tip of the iceberg for the types of crises and catastrophes that we're going to see coming in, in the next years and decades. And the way that governments react, not just in the U.S., but globally, are going to affect greatly the way that the working class views the elites. And at some point, something's got to give as those institutions fall away and as people, the working class, realize their own power. We've mentioned many times on the podcast this whole idea of the sacred aura of the center, right? And people becoming disenchanted with their government. As long as I've been alive, I don't think we've ever had as high of levels of that as we have now in the U.S. And I don't see that changing even a little bit, especially as we come up on the 2022 midterm elections here. As we go into the 2024 presidential elections, it's hard for me to fathom what's going to come of that as each side has now basically just been granted soft permission to claim that, that the election was stolen, right? And the buffoonery that comes out of that, and it basically becomes a laughing stock, uh, gives people, citizens, this feeling of the entirety of our government is a joke. And so it will be both fascinating and terrifying to see the result of, of that in the coming few years as well. Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode. It's been really fun one to research. I highly recommend John Michael Greer's book, Dark Age America. This has been just one chapter from his book. There are eight other chapters which are fabulous and each touch on different parts of, of where the United States is heading but can be applied um, probably equally as well throughout the globe. Thanks so much for listening and we'll talk again next week. 